Um, turn in the blue pew Bible, if you will. It might be under the chairs if you're sitting in the back. It looks like this to page uh, 886. I think it is the gospel according to John. It's a somewhat of a long text, so it would help you to follow along. Beginning at verse 19 of John 1. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me, baptizes with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes. All flesh is like grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray for the word of God to be Uh, go forth from this pulpit now. We thank you for Darwin and his preparation. We thank you for his love for you. We thank you for his deep understanding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Lord, by your Spirit, pierce us to the quick afresh with the love that you have for us demonstrated in that spotless blemish-free lamb who died on our behalf. In Christ we pray it. Amen. Well, I certainly appreciate my brother's prayer. You all just, you know that the more you read about the Lamb of God, you just feel like you're Lost in an ocean of beauty. And 
and you can't even begin to talk about it because you won't be able to say what you you want to say about his glory and and beauty. Um, Praise God that we have such a savior. We will be focusing on verse twenty nine in this great declaration of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's odd, as we saw last week, because lamb tends to bring to mind meekness and gentleness. But probably in the first place with John, he's intending this term of lamb to be one of majestic power because he spoke in the other Gospels of the one who is coming to bring in the harvest and to burn up the chaff. And in that context speaks of his being baptized. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Jewish literature concerning the final judgment in the kingdom of God, the figure of a lamb is mentioned. And he's a figure of power and dominance, defeating all the enemies of God. And this comes out in none other than the book of Revelation, which speaks of final judgment and the end of the world. Told, I think, in cycle after cycle, describing how God will rule and finally defeat his enemies. And in that book, he this lamb and and again, lamb tends to make us think of meekness and even weakness, you know, yet the lamb is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Kings have absolute power over their subjects, but this lamb has absolute power over those kings. They are his subjects. All power on the earth is subject to him. In Revelation, he defeats the enemies of God. He pours out the wrath of God and rescues his people. He protects and shelters his people. He washes them clean in his own blood. He takes them as his bride. He launches the marriage feast of the Lamb and gives them the water of life forever. All of that is spoken of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I want to leave you, we've mentioned these, but just as a review to leave you with encouragement concerning this glorious lamb who comes. It is a lamb that judges the world. Now, that in itself is an encouragement. If you hear this announcement and God gives us this announcement, it's not so that you will finally be judged by that lamb. It's that you will catch yourself. And you will say to yourself, wait a minute, you're saying a lamb that was slain is going to judge the world? Well, that's hopeful, isn't it? A lamb that was slain for sinners is also the judge of the world. Might I come to that lamb and have my sins forgiven? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, there could be no glorious truth than that you belong to the lamb who has died for sinners. And you're safe in his bosom and you're not going to be subject to his judgment. Well, that's glorious news. It is a lamb and those who've trusted him couldn't be safer. They belong to him. He has been slain in their place. He has borne their judgment. And so the judge who is a lamb has been judged for sinners. And that's good news. It's very good news. And so I encourage you, 
trust in this lamb who comes to judge the world, that you would belong to him. Secondly, he is all powerful and majestic, as he's described by John and described in the book of Revelation. He cannot fail of his purpose to save sinners. His judgment is terrible because it's inescapable. He's the all powerful king of kings, but he's all powerful as a savior as well. Sin is no match for him. Your bondage is no match for him. Your guilt is no match for him. He's the king of grace. He will make any sinner's robes clean because he is all powerful as a savior. We need a powerful savior, a sovereign savior who really can rescue us in all of our brokenness and weakness. And then finally, I think in the most ultimate sense, when John says he takes away the sin of the world, the final accomplishment of this is in the new heavens and the new earth when all sin is removed from this world. And there will only be blessedness. There will be no hurt, no pain, no grief, no tears. It will all be good. Colossians 1 says he reconciles all things to himself. Even creation is brought to perfection and to a perfect benefit for his people who have also been made perfect. And so in this sense, the term Prince of Peace is very close to Lamb of God. The Lamb removes all sin and misery from the world. And so the Lamb is indeed the Prince of Peace. He will bring it about. And we belong to him and we will inherit that kingdom forever because we are those who've had our robes washed in the blood of this lamb. But all this being said about this majestic, glorious lamb who comes to judge the earth and to rescue his people, it especially points us then to the lamb that was slain for his people, the lamb that was slain. And this mention of lamb brings up a host of pictures from the Old Testament. And I want to wander through those pictures and present those from the Old Testament. It's difficult to know which of these was in the mind, if any of John the Baptist or then since John the evangelist writing this was writing after the death of Christ, he could fill this statement of John with even more meaning and richness that perhaps John was not even fully aware of when he proclaimed it. But these are the kinds of things that must have been going through John's mind and certainly have gone through the church's mind throughout history as we've looked at Christ and seen how he is the lamb, uh, the lamb that is pictured so many times in the Old Testament. The first is uh, from Genesis chapter 22, with Abraham and Isaac. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, Abraham, one of the great fathers of uh, the great father of the Jewish faith, was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, to go to a certain mountain and sacrifice his son. And there was a, a buildup of tension as they approached the place and he gets all the way to the point of binding his son. And the Hebrew word for that uh, the Hebrew description of that story has to do with that word binding, the, the binding of of Isaac. And even as he's got the knife raised to plunge it and or to to uh, begin to spill his blood, 
he is stopped by an angel and sees a ram caught in the thicket. And the ram is sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Glorious picture of substitution. This is one of the the first time where we see so clearly this substitution of a lamb, a ram in the place of Isaac. And interestingly, when Isaac and Abraham are going up the mountain, Isaac asks a very sensible question. Where is the sacrifice? Where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? You said we're going to sacrifice. Well, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. And his commentators have pointed out that was prophetic. He couldn't imagine the ultimate sense in which that was true. Here is the lamb ultimately that God provides. And John is pointing him out. Behold, the lamb of God. In a far greater sense than just that sacrifice on Mount Moriah, but in a whole sense of a lamb being sacrificed for any sinner that will trust in him. But it's interesting because that story has another side of it that is fulfilled in Christ. And that is Abraham and Isaac, because Abraham is the picture of God sacrificing his son, Isaac. And and Isaac, of course, represents Christ. Now, interestingly, when Jesus is, it is said of Jesus at his baptism and at the transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That word beloved is used three times in Genesis 22. As the Lord himself in speaking to Abraham speaks of Isaac and says, your beloved son, Isaac, you were willing to sacrifice your beloved son, Isaac, your beloved three times. And so when God speaks of his own son as beloved, it it see we see it as a fulfillment of what Abraham did with Isaac. But with a great difference, isn't it? Isn't there? Romans 8.32 brings out the difference. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all that we might that he uh, and therefore he will freely give us all things in him. Abraham was spared giving up his son. God did not spare himself in giving up his son. And so Jesus becomes both the lamb and he is the son. It is the son that is offered as the sacrifice. And he's called the lamb of God. That means he belongs to God. He comes from God. It is in that sense God's own offering of his son. And you think, wait a minute. God doesn't need to make sacrifice. We do. We're the ones who sinned. God is making a sacrifice and God's making a sacrifice of his own son. What in the world is going on? It goes off the charts. It it, it doesn't fit on the radar screen that the God against whom we've sinned. Now we behold him coming, making sacrifice. And we look closer and we see it's his own son. It's his own son. He spared Abraham's son. But he didn't spare his own son. So Isaac was only offered up in parable. But Jesus, where Isaac bore the wood, 
Jesus bore his cross of wood and was really sacrificed. Interesting, the Jewish Midrash says that Isaac carried the wood like a man who takes up his cross. And Jesus carried the wood for sure. And so we have the love of Abraham loving God above all else, depriving himself of what was dearest for him. And this serves us as a figure of the super abundant love of God who did not spare his own son, but gave what was most precious to him. And it's interesting in the uh, old uh, tombs and and coffins, the church would take delight in representing the sacrifice of Isaac because it was a picture of God sacrificing for his people. So behold, the Lamb of God. He also was, uh, he is a picture of the Passover Lamb. And this is a familiar story of, of how the Israelites were told by God to sacrifice a lamb and to spread the blood on the doorposts of their houses. And the death angel came that night. Here is Israel seeking now to escape from Egypt. And this is God's final opening of the door, so to speak, as he brings blow after blow after blow on Egypt. So that like a, a pit bull, Egypt would finally let go and, and release God's people. And the final blow was the death of the firstborn of every house in Egypt. And we must understand that the angel would come to the door of the Israelite. And it's not that he's looking at the door and saying or, or the house and saying, oh, wait, this is an Israelite house. Oh, OK, I'll, I'll pass over this house. It's the blood on the door substituted for the firstborn or the firstborn of every house in Israel would have been killed that night. You see, it was because the blood represented a life has been given in substitution and therefore he passes over and it's called the Passover, the Passover of God's wrath. The wrath did not come to those houses, but it fell upon the Egyptians who had no blood covering their door. And so he is called in First Corinthians five, seven, the Passover and the English uh, standard translation and NIV give, I think, accurately what is intended there. The Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. He's called the Passover lamb. The one who causes God's wrath to pass over us because he has shed his blood and it covers us and we are protected. And there's no way that God's wrath will come to us because we are hidden in the glory of Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. There is only and, and, and the, the, the contrast between Israelites who were then eating the Passover feast. It was a picture of their intimate fellowship with God. While the Egyptians were wailing and screaming because every household had the death of the firstborn. Look at the contrast. It's the contrast of heaven and hell. Of those who have the blood of Christ and they've trusted in that blood and they're protected forever. And not only is wrath not given them, but intimate fellowship and embrace and love of God is given to them because of the Passover lamb. No condemnation, but only gracious fellowship with God. 
Then there's the picture likely uh, drawn also from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, in Isaiah, there is the suffering servant in many chapters in Isaiah. And then in Isaiah 53, in speaking about this suffering servant, we read familiar words to many of you. Surely. And by the way, I've heard stories where this was read to Jewish uh, people and without telling them where it was from. And they said, yeah, but I don't believe in the New Testament. Well, this is Old Testament. Uh, speaking of the substitution. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so we have this one who is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who is substituting so that. Though we have turned our own way, the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which Philip Edgecombe Hughes says is the most amazing statement in Scripture. It says he became sin for us. Now, he didn't become a sinner. He was always perfect and continues to be perfect. But he became sin. It's the most graphic way to say sin was imputed to him and he he completely received the punishment as though he had done it. He became sin on our behalf, on our behalf, so that all wrath is poured out on him. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then there are other uh, mentions of the lamb constantly in the sacrifices in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There's the lamb of the peace offering. And basically the Passover is a kind of peace offering because the peace offering was an offering that you sacrifice and you ate of the offering. And that's a picture of now having made sacrifice and atonement. You have peace with God. That's the peace that's spoken of. And so you have fellowship with him. You share a meal with him. You sit down and eat with God. Because sacrifice has been made for you, the peace offering. But part of the peace offering is that the, the one who sacrifices lays his or her hand upon the animal, upon the lamb. And it's so graphic. You speak your sins upon the lamb. The lamb is killed. That's substitution. You're not killed. The lamb is killed. How graphic that would be to see the lamb's throat cut before your eyes and and blood spill out of that lamb. And it's simply a picture. The lamb really couldn't take sin away. It was a picture of the real lamb to come. But what a picture. This lamb died because I just spoke my sins over this lamb. And I'm saved. And that's a picture of how you and I come to Christ. Confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin, not being dishonest, not making excuses, not blaming somebody else. Saying, it is me. I am the sinner. Oh, Lord, I speak over my sin. I trust you. I embrace you. I hold on to you, Lord Jesus. Take my sin away. And on the day of atonement, 
the goat. And of course, interestingly, the Passover lamb, when it says you can take a lamb, you can take it either of the sheep or the goats. So uh, to say lamb includes uh, the goats and includes all the sacrifices in a certain sense. But on the great day of atonement, once a year, one uh, goat is taken and, and sacrificed uh, before the altar. But the other goat is the one in which they would speak the sins of the people. And the goat was released into the wilderness. And the picture then of our sins being taken away from us. And the picture of that one who takes the sins away being cast out from fellowship, cast out into wilderness, cast out into the darkness, abandoned because he has our sin upon him. And as several have pointed out, this is the picture of Jesus who was taken outside the city, as Hebrews 13 speaks of it. And he was he was put to death outside the city as Without fellowship, without being a part of of humanity anymore, he's he's cast out like a piece of refuse. And he takes our sin away like the scapegoat, like the goat cast into the wilderness. And then there was the morning and evening sacrifice. Every morning a lamb was offered. Every evening a lamb was offered. Morning and evening and morning and evening. And in all of this, the offerer is pronounced guilty. He's liable of the wrath of God. His guilt is transferred to the animal and the animal is either killed or cast out into the wilderness. The person sins and is guilty, but the animal dies. It's just like Christ. We are guilty, but he dies. But if he dies and we trust in him, then we don't die. Then there is no condemnation. There is no wrath. He has substituted for us. You see, this was an offense in the Greek world. Interestingly, the Greek world was familiar with substitutionary suffering. One person substituting and suffering for others. The idea of a hero dying for his city. Or for his friends or a hero dying for the sake of philosophical truth. This was fairly common in Greek literature. And it was understood that it would be a sacrifice by which the anger of the gods would be appeased. But what made the Christian presentation of the atoning death of Christ so novel And so repulsive to its hearers was that Jesus didn't die as a hero to deliver his community or his friends, but as a condemned criminal sentenced to the repugnant fate of crucifixion. It was appalling that they were holding forth a condemned criminal as the Savior, as the Lord, as the one whom you would worship and give your life to. And, of course, they didn't change the message so it would fit. They just put it out there. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, what we preach is foolishness. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But it's the power of God for salvation. Because that same message that seems so foolish, so 
horrible, so despicable as God brings the light of the beauty of Christ to bear on them. They see in it, God has sacrificed his son for me. And they embrace him and they bow down to him and they call him Lord because Lord he is. And never more the glorious Lord than when he is on the cross and you can't even recognize that he's a man anymore. Then his glory shines its greatest. And because his work was perfect, and because he offers himself as God's own son superior to anything in the Old Testament, the sacrifices stop. Morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening. What is that telling us? It's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's like water pouring into a submarine and it looks like it's going to sink it. But finally it's shut off or some horrible noise that's just about to drive you crazy finally is silenced. Or like in that movie, Wait Until Dark, when Audrey Hepburn tries for, it seems like hours as you're watching it to escape the killer. And finally he's gone. And that's the picture of, of in Scripture, this sin that speaks constantly of wrath and judgment and, and the appeasement of lambs is not working. It's, it's holding something off, but you have to keep doing it, keep doing it. And then in Hebrews, the word hapax, which is used to mean one time, like if, if you have one word in the Greek, it's called a hapax legomenon. One time, and if it occurs one time in the New Testament, well, that word hapax once is used over and over in Hebrews to say he sacrificed once. It's done. It's complete. It's finished. It's removed. It's valid for all times. There's no need to repeat it. He's seated now in the right hand of God. It's all completed and done. His sacrifice is effective. And at the time Hebrews were, was written, they were still sacrificing the lambs at the temple. And he's telling these people, these Jews who were being tempted to return to Judaism, don't go back to those lambs that can't take the sin away. They're being repeated and repeated because they're simply a picture of the Lamb of God that truly takes away the sin of the world. You see, you and I might think that because sin is so terrible, sin is an assault upon God. Sin is our attempt to abuse and molest God if we could. It's our attempt to fight against his lordship, to contradict his majesty and beauty and authority. It's an attack on his glory. That's what sin is. And you might think that he's so just and pure, so sensible of the least injury, which he is so tender of his glory, so jealous of the least violation of a wrong done to his glory. And he is. That he would require that we have to do any number of things and have a full satisfaction before there could be peace between us. It's our fault, not his. And isn't it always the case if somebody's wronged you? Well, what are you going to do to make it right? What are you going to do to make it right with all the wrong you've done? You've stolen from me. You've hurt me. You've... And you think, will he even listen to an agreement? Will he even listen? 
And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says he sent his ambassadors to say he's not only willing to listen, he's made this reconciliation his chief business. He's fully desirous about it. It's always been his plan. In fact, we're here to announce you that he has already in the world, has already been here reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And he he says to the ambassadors, tell them satisfaction has already been made. Tell them that. Tell them I've already made a sacrifice for them. Tell them they can have all their sins forgiven. Tell them that they can be reconciled to me. We can be friends and I can pour all my goodness out upon them. I've already taken care of their need beforehand. There's nothing for you to do but come and trust me. You see, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are so united to him that he has already received your penalty. And it is your penalty. If you trust Christ, you've already been punished, but you didn't have to be punished. Your sin is punished. That's how close you are with Christ. Your sin is gone. There is no judging of you anymore. There is no punishment of you. Anything that happens to you has nothing to do with punishment, even though you and I tend to think so. Has God punished me? He punished Christ. He will never punish anybody who trusts in Christ. He will deal with you. He will dis- He's never pleased with your sin, but he loves you as a child. You are covered. You are clean. You have no judgment against you. And brothers and sisters, it's not only his death, but as the lamb, he obeyed God perfectly. So. I struggle. We all struggle with unbelief, for instance, with fears and not trusting God in so many areas of our life. Praise be Jesus trusted him perfectly. And that's put to your account. You you hide yourself in Jesus who always trusted God. He always worshiped God with a perfect heart. He always prayed. He always meditated in the word. The Lord was perfectly pleasing to the Father. And now you are united to Christ and hidden in His glory. His whole life was for you. Every step, every obedience, every thought, every word was for your good. And so there is no more wrath. All wrath has been poured out on Christ. All judgment and condemnation is forever gone. He only loves his people. And praise be his name that as the lamb he redeems. That's a very important word. He sets you free from the dominion of sin. And now by his grace you belong to him. And what has been the purchase price? It's spoken of as a purchase in 1 Peter He says, you've not been bought with silver and gold, but you've been bought with precious blood, blood as of a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How could God spend so lavish, so lavish an amount to purchase you? 
Can you measure that love? Can you measure that desire? Can you measure what he must want to do for you for the rest of your life? And how every day should be put in the hands of this God that would love you and spend his son to get you? He wouldn't spare his own son so that he can spare you. (laughs) And not just spare you, but that he might lavish upon you his love every day of your life. Oh, believer, one of the greatest ways you can honor him. And this is interesting. Thomas Goodwin, one of the old Puritan writers, said, you know, it's interesting that God didn't redeem the, the angels. He said, because they had a lot more to offer than we did in terms of service. I mean, they stand at the throne of God and they don't have to sleep. He talks about, well, we have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to rest. We have so little that we can do really to serve God compared to angels. And Goodwin makes a great point. He says, it must be that dependence upon God glorifies him more than even service to God. Just depending as a helpless child. That must be what he was about because he took the very weakest, most unable to do anything for him. And he lavished the blood of his own son to have them so that they could be simple children in the hands of their Savior forever and ever. Praise his name. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. We join with the chorus that we read of in Revelation. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory. Worthy is the Lamb to receive honor. Worthy is the Lamb to receive dominion and authority. To receive power. Worthy, worthy are you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you have exhibited to us none other than the very love of the Father. What we are seeing is the love of God himself. It was God, as Paul says, who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Oh, Father, it was you. You so loved the world that you gave your son. And we can live in the light of that love every minute of the day. For the Lamb has taken our sin away. Thank you, Lord. And may we rest in it. May we rejoice in it. May you take away all fear of punishment and judgment. For as John says, perfect love, that is a perfect understanding of your love in Christ, casts out fear. Oh, may we exalt you. As we rest in you and freely, gladly give ourselves up for your will. This we ask in the precious name of Christ. Amen.